Well, good morning and welcome again to the Lord of Grace online service here. Still feels weird standing in front of a camera and preaching to an empty room, but uh, it's what we have to do right now. I uh, hope everyone is staying isolated and safe. Uh, welcome to all our members and friends of the church who are watching. Uh, welcome to all my old high school and college friends who are tuning in to see how I turned out as a pastor. And um, those who remember me when I was just the nerd who walked around in flannels all the time. I hope everyone had a good Easter uh, as much as you can under quarantine. And I know they keep telling us, I know they keep telling us that we're supposed to be relaxing and meditating and taking advantage of all this time, that we should be learning new job skills and picking up hobbies. And I think. For a lot of us, that's just a privilege we don't have. Uh, if you're me, there's way too many people in the house. I got five kids, there's always noise, there isn't any meditating that's gonna happen. Uh, or, uh, and on the flip side, a lot of us don't even have work anymore or our hours have been cut back. So yeah, there may be time to meditate, but it's hard to sit and focus on higher things when you're worried about how am I gonna pay my bills? Where's my food gonna come from? In fact, for a lot of us, this is a time of high stress. So a lot of us are under a lot of stress and we've got a lot of time to stress out about it. So let's do our part, uh, try to stay away so we can beat this and get back to normal as soon as we can. But I have a feeling this is going to take us a little bit. We're gonna have to get used to things like watching our church services online and preaching to an empty room. So, okay, well that said, uh, I'm gonna start out this season, uh, the season of Easter, doing a sermon series that I had planned out last year. I tend to plan out my series ahead of time. I'm calling it Finding Grace. Uh, and grace is one of those, those basic messages of the Christian church, one of those very basic messages of the faith that you kind of can't talk about too much and you can't emphasize too much because there are so many people out there who don't particularly teach grace or they may believe it, but their actions don't show it. In their actions, they're teaching judgment and they're teaching punishment and they're teaching rules and laws and an obsession with rules and laws and pushing those rules and laws on others, judging them when they fail to live up to them, which of course is the opposite of who Jesus was and how he lived his life and how he operated and what he taught. But the perception is there because there are people who do that and who believe that. There are a lot of churches. There's an old way of preaching, for example, that I heard about that said, you have to make sure everybody knows how sinful they are before you talk about grace, otherwise it won't mean anything. So that model of preaching would say, you start out, you spend the first oh, 80, 90% of your sermon talking about sin specific sins, what kind of sins, how bad your sin is, how hard it is to get away from your sin, how in bondage to your sin you are, how bad hell is, how you're going to this hell because of your sins. And then in that last little 10%, you squeak in, but Jesus died for you and so there's grace. And yes, they end on the right note, but if 90% of it is you're a sinner going to hell, that's usually what, that's what your mind remembers. And that's the message I got beaten into. I, I cannot preach that way. So what I'm gonna do is try to go back a little bit 
and talk about grace. Yes, I believe there is sin, but I think more of us are more aware of our sins than we are of how much God really loves us and what grace really means. And I want everyone to know that God does in fact love them uh, and is not the great punisher in the sky. Even though I do believe we have a just God who does care about injustices that we do towards one another and who doesn't approve of all actions everywhere. And yet, the love of God needs to be the message that gets heard through all that. If God is love and we really believe that, how do we show it? How do we let people know? Well, it doesn't come from yelling. It doesn't come from yelling at people and telling them they're going to hell. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, the past three years, yeah, past three years, I've been going every year to the Tucson Hip Hop Festival. I know I don't, uh, I, I'm not normally the biggest hip hop fan in the world. Uh, I go to watch the graffiti artists. And uh, we had, Tucson actually has a really good hip hop festival. They do it downtown. They block off Tool Avenue, which is uh, the street right there, and they have the warehouse buildings that have performance venues, and the parking lot, they fill that with vendors, graffiti artists. You can see some very, very talented artists down there. This year, it got bumped to October because of this whole corona thing. Uh, but last year, last year uh, I was there, and I was watching this guy who was up on a stage, and there were multiple different stages, even outdoor stages. And one of them was kind of on the far edge of the area that they blocked off, uh, the part of the street. And the way that they blocked it off was they put up this orange mesh, you know, like you see at construction sites a lot of times. And the orange mesh signaled what was in and what was out. You had to pay to get on the other side. And there was a stage, but the stage was really close to that edge. And if you kind of veered over the mesh, you could see it. Well, this whole crowd had gathered. This guy's up performing on the stage, very talented. And there's these two, I'll call them bozos, that'll be the nice term. Two bozos, and they come up, and they've got their bullhorns. And I think one, one they had bullhorns, I think even one even had some, one of those big, you know, marker-written signs. Uh, and they were yelling at everybody over the mesh with their bullhorns about how rap was the devil's music, and you're all going to hell, and you need to repent of listening to hip-hop, and I'm sitting there, and I, I wanted to jump over the fence and smack them, but, you know, that's violence. Uh, so I refrained from it, but I was really, really mad at those guys because here you have, here you have this hip-hop festival, and all these people are here, and they're all listening, and there's this guy on the stage. Well, those idiots with the bullhorns, if they would have spent any time paying attention, they would have known that the director of the hip-hop festival, the founder of it, uh, goes to a Presbyterian church in town. Uh, he's a Christian. And he got into hip-hop through Christian hip-hop. That's how we got the hip-hop festival. And not only that, but the guy standing on the stage is an active member of his church. And the stuff he was talking about in his performance was about how much Jesus has changed his life and how much he loves the Lord. And so here he is at this festival with this audience, all these young people, a lot of whom don't go to church, and he's delivering a very solid message about God's love and about God's ability to transform your life. And there's all these people and they're singing along with it, but it was hard to hear him because those bozos with the bullhorn were overpowering it. And yeah, I wanted to reach over the fence and deck them. Again, I didn't. But I wanted to look at them and say, 
show, guys. Way to turn people off. I, I can guarantee you there was not one person who heard those bullhorns and said, Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. I'm giving up hip-hop and I'm going to join you people with the bullhorns. You know, it's a free country. I can't make them stop. But what they were doing is they're poisoning the well for the rest of us who do want to talk about Jesus and believe that Jesus changes your life. Now we've got to overcome the message that those guys gave. Because the message on that stage was love and grace. And the message from the bullhorns was wrath and judgment. And I want more grace. What does grace look like? It looks more like the guy at the hip-hop festival going out and meeting people and making friends and supporting their art and supporting the community than anything in that yelling. It's getting out there that often is one of the best ways we can experience grace. It's what you see in Jesus' habit of always having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. I love those stories about the sinners and tax collectors. And there's a whole bunch of them in the Bible. It seems to come up a lot. So I get the feeling Jesus did this a lot. Uh, and Jesus usually, the scenario usually goes the same. Jesus gets invited by one of these sinners and tax collectors. And he goes along to their house and he's having a good time, and then suddenly along comes someone from the religious establishment who gets all worked up and chews Jesus out because he's associating with those people, the sinners and tax collectors. Now, there's a lot of dynamics at play with these kind of parties. A lot more dynamics than we probably have today, although some of them are still here, will probably always be here. Uh, and sometimes uh, there's good analogies for them. Sometimes there's not. You know, I try to imagine, I try to imagine what those parties must have been like. To be a fly on the wall at one of those sinners and tax collectors parties. You know, so maybe put your imagination caps on. Try to picture what a Matthew the disciple and his tax collector friends party looked like. First, it would have been a good party. Uh, tax collectors were rich, so this was not like seedy back alley stuff. Would have been a nice house, good food, there probably was lots of live entertainment, uh, lots of servants, maybe slaves, dancers, music. You would have had a lot of people there, rich, fine robes, lots of perfume. I think we make a mistake when thinking about this, of imagining these gatherings as being kind of sketchy. You know, like the back of a strip club or some drug dealer storefront place. The best way I can think of this is maybe more like, picture like one of those Wall Street parties. You know, suits, Chardonnay, some Coke, dancers, great views of Central Park, maybe a bunch of waiters bringing stuffed mushrooms and cocktail glasses around while these filthy rich guys are doing all sorts of decadent things. And into the mix of that, you put Jesus. And he's sitting there while the fancy food gets passed around and the entertainment does their thing. And he's probably looking a little bit out of place. Remember, Jesus, he's a carpenter. He's not a banker. His clothes, his accent, 
his hair, all would have given him away as somebody who's not from that crowd. But he's there because he's the honored guest of Matthew, who's also a tax collector and has now decided he's going to be one of Jesus' disciples. And how do you honor your teacher? You have him over to your house. Invite him to the party. Have him meet your friends. Have him over for dinner. I figure if you were Matthew there, you probably would have been looked at a little bit funny by your tax collector friends. I mean, I'm probably sure the first question is, when did Matthew get religion? And then, of course, don't rabbis hate tax collectors? So why is he here? And when are we going to get the lecture? You see, back then, rabbis were expected to keep up a good reputation and good appearances and stay clean from things that were forbidden in God's law. You weren't supposed to eat pork or shellfish or go to houses of people who did because if they did things that were unclean, their house was unclean. So Jesus wasn't supposed to be there. But then there's the political aspect of this. And this is a dimension that we probably miss a bit in America. Because we're not living in an occupation. We haven't for a couple hundred years. But I imagine that if you were a good New England preacher back in 1770, and you were sitting there in your, your meeting house or your Congregationalist church, and you went to hang out with the Redcoats and their colonial mansions, you might not have had a lot of friends. Paul Revere would not have been amused. Who is this preacher that he hangs out with Redcoats and tax assessors from the King of England? So the boundary Jesus is crossing is not just a class boundary, it's not just a religious boundary, it's a political boundary. The tax collectors then weren't like today's tax collectors, who are today just paid to enforce the tax laws that the government made, and the laws that are voted on by the people we vote on. The tax collectors back then, they took what Rome wanted to, and then they took extra, and they kept the extra for themselves, and Rome just looked the extra the other way at all the extra they took, figuring, eh, it's not our problem. As long as we have our money, we're good. And the people didn't see it as much. If you're back in that day, yeah, you would have seen the Romans build a road, and you would have seen an aqueduct, and all that would have been nice if you were somebody who had the means to enjoy it. But for the most part, you would not have seen where your money went. It wasn't like it went to pay for public schools or health care or the Department of Developmental Disabilities. The money disappeared to build big things like Roman armies and temples in Rome to gods you didn't believe in and coliseums to have gladiator fights in. To be a tax collector was to be a sellout of the enemy. You weren't just hated for your lifestyle but for your perceived treason. And I figure the tax collectors got together to party because they only had each other to party with. But I don't think they spent a lot of time wishing the country rabbis and the priests and the Pharisees would approve of them. They probably, 
I imagine the tax collectors probably looked at all the religious people who were judging them as more of a nuisance. Kind of like the people standing beyond the mesh yelling at them. But Jesus got in. He got into that world. And what did he do? Well, we don't exactly know. It doesn't say. In a lot of these passages where Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors, he'll tell a parable. He'll go and teach stories. And so we'll have a record of the teachings he did. In this particular story we get at Matthew's house, it doesn't say what Jesus did. It said he ate. He ate with them. What did he eat? We don't know. Did he teach? We don't know. Did he talk about religion? We don't know. Did he talk about politics and the latest Roman campaign and what did you think of Pilate's spending plan? Yeah, we don't know. Whatever it was, it wasn't something that got the sinners and tax collectors upset. We have no indication that they had any problem with Jesus. In all the gospel stories, there's never a situation where Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors and the sinners and tax collectors have a problem with Jesus. That never happens. But his presence, Jesus' presence there, really bothered these, this particular group of Pharisees who showed up. And it's kind of funny, because you go, why did they care? Why did they care so much? Why do they care if some country rabbi wants to hang out with a bunch of tax collectors? What difference does it make to them? There is one theory uh, that Jesus' school of thought, that he, his home synagogue probably was run by Pharisees. So they might have known him. He was maybe somewhat, he may be kind of one of them, or at least been trained in their school of thought. Uh, but still, what I think is that they just didn't like Matthew and his company. And they felt that social ostracism is what Matthew and his buddies, his tax collector buddies, deserved for the sins they committed. And Jesus, by going to Matthew's house, by socializing with them, that he was validating what they did. That he was giving his stamp of approval to their behavior. That his presence was an endorsement saying that what they were doing was okay. And now think about that. How is Jesus supposed to teach sinners about the way of God if he never hangs out with them? If he doesn't show them any of God's love. How, how, how is he supposed to do this? How are they going to learn what it means to be loved and accepted by their Creator if the followers and teachers of the Creator only yell and condemn them from afar? Well, obviously they won't. So Jesus goes to where they are, and he doesn't run around condemning them. And I'm sure they noticed that. And they probably said things like, Oh, finally, a rabbi who teaches God's law without telling me I'm unclean. I think by being there, Jesus wasn't endorsing their behavior, but was accepting them as human beings, as children of God, and people loved by their Creator. His presence was probably the closest a lot of them had come to the Scriptures in a long time, and that's the point. Jesus' presence was a powerful message that God loves you. If God's followers can't love me, how do I know God does? 
And if following God makes you hateful and angry, eh, maybe I'll pass. But if following God makes you loving, or if that's what I see, then I might start to think that your God is loving. And this is a hard message to preach now over the internet while we're all in quarantine. But file it away for the future when things are lifted. Your presence is often the most important sign of grace that you can give someone. We all live busy lives. We all have tons to do. If you're willing to spend your time on me and invest in me and be seen with me, that tells me something. That says you think I'm worth it. If everyone else wants nothing to do with me, but you do, if you're willing to spend time on me and invest in me and be seen with me, that says something. That says you think I'm worth it. If everyone else wants nothing to do with me but you do, that is an act of grace. And you don't have to mention God right off the bat. Eventually it'd be good, but you don't need to lead with it. Being there with someone is powerful. It's, it's like your new girlfriend from the other side of the tracks, however your town defines those tracks. If you won't be seen with her in public, or take her around, or your family, it doesn't say that much about how you value her. If you're willing to show your presence out there, or I guess online these days, then it says something. It says grace. So when you can, when things get back to normal, remember that you can share a lot of the gospel just by showing up and spending time and being there. That something as simple as eating and dining together can be an act of grace. And it can open doors for the Holy Spirit, for us and for the people we're with. Amen. Have a happy Easter season, and I'll see you all next week. God bless.